this side always so far back? What's going on with you guys over here? That's what I want to know. I think it's funny how we're all creatures of habit, and we sit in the same spots typically. I'm sure some of you have had your name carved in that particular pew for a long time. But I'm no different. I always just sit right here for some reason. I, I thought, well, maybe I'll move on this side. And I never do. But anyway, it's good to see you. I hope your afternoon was good. If you got home and watched uh, what was supposed to be, I guess, a ball game, Kentucky took care of business pretty good today. So if you missed the first half on account of me preaching, then you missed the whole game, I guess. I apologize. But Oh, we had a good morning this morning. I hope your afternoon was good. And and um, want to continue where we sort of left off. And um, I, I made mention this morning of the particular version of the Bible that I used. I had some uh, folks come up to me last Sunday evening, which I was, I was thankful for, to say, what version are you using? And I made mention of it this morning. I don't want us to be on different pages. I guess kind of we are in a sense. And there's lots of different versions. It's Honestly, not something I'm going to get uh, caught up in and, and uh, that sort of thing. But uh, in case you are wondering, if you didn't hear this morning, uh, the one that I'm reading from is the Holman Christian Standard. Uh, it was published uh, in partnership from Holman Publishers and the Southern Baptist Convention. They got together and decided they wanted to do a new translation of the Bible, and they worked on it for 20 years. And so it was published finally in, in, uh, excuse me, in 2004. So they worked on this thing for 20 years trying to get it the way they, they felt like it should be. And so anyway, it, um, it is, without, how can I not bore you with details here? <clears throat> it is, there are different ways you go about translating the Bible. I'm not a Bible translator, so don't hold me to all this stuff. But there are two main ways. One is you go thought for thought. You kind of take the overall thought of what that particular verse was going for, and you reconstruct an English sentence based upon that thought. All right? So that's one way that that things are translated. Typically, the New International Version, the New Living Translation, those are all thought for thought. Uh, they, they are very readable, they're very understandable, not quite as literal as going word for word, which would make sense. Uh, word for word is when they take the exact Hebrew in the Old Testament or Greek word in the New Testament, and they fit an English word the best they can, and then they gather all those words together and kind of cram them into a sentence, and sometimes it reads really well, and sometimes it doesn't. And, and yet it's very literal, all right? So you kind of have those two, not extremes, but two different ways of going about it. Word for word uh, includes the King James Version. If you've read that before, which I'm sure many of you have, maybe still use it, you realize that it's a very literal translation, and yet sometimes maybe a little bit difficult to read, using a language, a very stately, back in the 1600s, obviously they spoke and, and they wrote a little differently than we do today. Uh, the New American Standard is a word-for-word translation. The English Standard, those uh, are all that. The Holman Standard, just in case you're wondering, why would you pick that one? I'll tell you. They, they approach it, as I said, the Southern Baptist Convention in partnership with Holman Publishers, who published the uh, King James Version. Uh, what they did was they took the best of both worlds. When it was best, as they studied the Hebrew or the Greek, to use a thought-for-thought sentence, they did that. When it was best to use word for word, they did that. So they arrived at a, at a translation strategy known as optimal equivalence, which gives you sort of the best of both worlds, I guess. So that's why I'm kind of using that. I, I didn't have the chance, and this morning not a real good setting to try to explain all that. I would have gotten many more blank stares than I'm getting right now. And so, anyway, 
if that is of interest to you in any, in any form, I certainly would be happy to uh, entertain any more conversation afterward. It is available if you're interested in getting a copy of this particular version. It's available at the Christian Bookstore on the Square. They don't have a ton of them. You may need to ask them. Uh, they carry primarily uh, the New Living, the NIV, those sorts of, of uh, translations there because that's in what, what is in highest demand. And obviously they're going to try to make money, and I don't blame them. I'd sell what's popular too. So anyway, um, but that, that's kind of why I'm using what, what I'm using. All right, so uh, about 20 bucks or so at the bookstore, by the way. Um, so we're in chapter 5 of Joshua, and I don't know if you've ever worked through a particular book of the Bible the way that we're working through it. I have before, and, and it's, it's always beneficial to me to kind of see how it all fits together. And so I hope that, that as we go through this, that it's not something that you just think, are we ever going to get done with Joshua? Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I've, 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 been, uh, I've sat under pastors that, uh, one uh, in particular that took three years to get through a particular book of the Bible. Now, I'm not planning on us being in Joshua for three years, okay? A total of six weeks is all we're going to be there. Uh, so we won't hit every single thing in Joshua. In fact, next Sunday morning, we'll look at chapter 6. Next Sunday night, we'll look at chapter 7. Then we'll skip just a little bit because there's part of the story that is equally important to the Bible but not quite as applicable, so to speak, to our lives uh, we're we're going to also skip, uh, once we get to it, part uh, where they divide the land. Sort of over and over for about eight chapters, they divide up the land. I'm not trying to do God a disservice, but I just want to make sure we can get through the book of Joshua and sort of see it as a whole. We'll talk about that. But anyway, we're in chapter 5 tonight, and we're looking uh, at what happened right after where we left off this morning, where they established the memorial stones to what God had done. If you were here this morning, you remember that we talked about the fact that it's beneficial if we're going to pursue God and achieve the success of being faithful and obedient to His Word, that we have markers along the way, things to sort of commemorate what God has done. And in a very visual sense, if we were to walk into your home or walk into my home, what would be there to signify that, that I know the Lord and He's done something in my life? What is there? What are the things along the way? What have I written down? What am I passing along? And so that's what we looked at this morning with the culminating verse being verse 24 of chapter 4. If you've got your Bible open, check it out. This is so all the people of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is mighty and so that you may always fear the Lord your God. You'll see this theme throughout the book of Joshua, that ultimately it's God who is in control. And though Joshua is a great leader and the Israelite people are a, are a great nation, they're going to do some really great things and God is going to bring them into an incredible place, it is, it is only because God is in control that any of this stuff happens. So as we approach chapter 5, that's going to be sort of our premise as we kind of walk through this. I'd like to approach it this way tonight. We're not going to be here real, real long. Uh, because chapter 5 is not real, real long. Okay, so, But I'd like to approach it this way. I'd like to approach it from the sense that, that we're just going to sort of walk through. There, there are about three different sections, and they seem to be disjointed. Uh, when I first read this, I thought, that, that just doesn't go together. Why? Well, how can you preach through that particular chapter? None of it works. None of it goes together. None of it preaches well, if you understand what I mean. But then after I read it over and over and over, began to study it just a little bit, I realized that, yeah, there are three different experiences that we'll see here, but really one main theme. So keep that in mind. There's one main theme here, and we'll see it expressed 
three different ways. So we're going to look at those experiences. I'll kind of pause after each one, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at that just a little bit and then move on. So check it out. When all the Amorite kings across the Jordan to the west and all the Canaanite kings near the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, they lost heart and their courage failed because of the Israelites. If you remember, we saw this... This, this idea of courage failing on the part of Israel's enemies back in chapter 2. You remember the story we looked at, I guess it was uh, last Sunday morning, I suppose, the story of Rahab. When, when she was uh, taking in those men who were there to spy, she said, we've all lost heart because of you. We, we know what your God has done. We know how powerful He is. We've seen Him work. We've heard the stories, and, and we've lost heart. We, this, this land is yours. You can take it. And so, here it is again. God did something else miraculous. They crossed the Jordan. When they all heard about it, they lost heart and their courage failed because of the Israelites. At that time, verse 2, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelite men again. Now, there's nothing like preaching on circumcision, let me tell you. Um, I thought about this and I thought, let me just skip this chapter. Because that's just, nobody wants to even preach about anything remotely close to that. I thought, well, there's God's got to be saying something through this. Circumcision to them was a very important thing. And we look at it and we say, well, that's just a medical procedure and, you know, and it's for babies and that kind of, I mean, what, what's the point? But circumcision for them was a sign that they were in covenant relationship with God. God had told them, this is what you are to do to, to signify that you're still honoring me, to signify that you're still following me. And so he, he had set this up. This was an outward sign of their inward covenant with God. So it was important to them. So that, that's why you see that, that theme of circumcision over and over. You may think, well, why on earth do they talk about that so much in the Old Testament? It was, a, it was a, an outward sign that they were in relationship with God. So Joshua made flint knives and circ- circumcised the Israelite men uh, at uh, Gibbereth Harloth. How about that? Harloth. Now, I, I've always found it interesting when, it, when I read parts of the Old Testament, maybe you do too, that there's one verse that'll say, here's what God said, and it almost repeats itself right after that. Now, if you're like me, typically you kind of skim over that. It's sort of like when we got earlier uh, today in, in chapter 4, and, and, and it says, choose 12 men from, from the people. And then <clears throat> verse 4, so Joshua summoned the 12 men. Well, why in the world would they keep repeating themselves over and over? Do they just get bored and need to fill up the space? I mean, were they writing the book and they say, you know, we don't have enough stuff, so let's put in a few more verses and just repeat it. It's interesting that, not to get too technical, but in their writing style, uh, what they were emphasizing was the fact that there was direct obedience to what God had just said. When God told them to do something, and He spelled it out, here's what you are to do, boom, 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 boom. Then they did it, boom, 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 boom. It just reflects the nature that our obedience ought to be exact to what God says. And and so as we read this, we realize, so Joshua made flint knives and circumcised. There was no question. There was no, God, what are you doing? It was just, he did it. This is the reason Joshua circumcised them. Here we go. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness along the way after they had come out of Egypt. You remember the story? They were the the, the guys who... uh, didn't believe God that he was giving them the land and they sent 12 spies in only two came back with a good report and God said fine you're not going to trust me all the people who didn't trust me they're going to die out here in the wilderness for 40 years until all those people are dead you're going to walk around so that's what had happened through all the people 
who can't, though all the people who came out were circumcised, none of the people born in the wilderness along the way were circumcised after they had come out of Egypt. For the Israelites wandered in the wilderness forty years until all the nation's men of war who came out of Egypt had died off because they did not obey the Lord. So the Lord vowed never to let them see the land he had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Joshua raised up their sons in their place. It was these he circumcised. They were still uncircumcised since they had not been circumcised along the way. After the entire nation had been circumcised, they stayed where they were in the camp until they recovered. The Lord then said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the disgrace of Egypt from you. Therefore, this place has been called Gilgal to this day. Now, as we think about this, this is one of the experiences that we're, we're going to look at. Same theme throughout, one of the experiences. The, the practice of circumcision, and, the, and we'll see in just a second, the practice of celebrating the Passover, it's sort of been discontinued while they wandered around in the, in the wilderness. That didn't mean they weren't God's people anymore. They just sort of, I don't know if they decided we're in the wilderness, we're, we're just sort of wandering around. You ever felt like that in life? And sometimes you just get out of the habit of doing the things you know God wants you to do, and, and we've all been there. And so this, this habit had been discontinued, and God says, okay, now in order to, to, to go into where I want you to go, in order to, to obtain this promised land, so to speak, you've got to renew the covenant. You've got to make that outward sign again. Now, these were not babies that we're talking about, and so uh, the pain that these men would have experienced would have been real. And not to get graphic or inappropriate in any way, but it it would have been very painful for them. The Bible says they needed time to recover. Now, here's, here's what doesn't make sense. Reading it from a purely human standpoint, you'd think, now, wait a minute. Why, if they were going to need time to recover, and they are preparing for battle, these, these were men of war, it says. Why would they inflict this sort of pain and the need for recovery on that side of the Jordan River? Think about it. In that day, there were no planes. There, there, were, there was no air attack. And so there were natural buffers that prevented wars from taking place. A river overflowing its banks would have been a great defense against any sort of attack. And yet in chapter 4, we see that they had already celebrated, hey, we're across the river, because in chapter 3, they had crossed the river. And then God says, now circumcise all the men so they'll be ready for war, ready to take the promised land. From a military standpoint, it doesn't make any sense. Not at all. Why would you want your army to be in pain and need time to recover when the enemy's just a couple of miles up the road and there's nothing between you and them? doesn't make any sense. But the truth is this. When God says, I've rolled away the disgrace of Egypt, He's letting them know, look, I've done this for you. And teaching them that they're going to have to rely on Him. You think about that army. Those guys sitting there. Those women and children just waiting. And I don't know what kind of period of time we're talking about here. I have no idea. But it's obvious that the people in Jericho, where they were about to attack, had heard about them. They had lost heart because of them. And yet if they had gotten word in any way that there had been pain inflicted, that there was recovery time needed, would it not make sense? That's the perfect time to attack the Israelite people. If I'm Joshua, if I'm their leader, the verse when it says, now go and circumcise the men, and then it says Joshua did that, probably if I'm the leader would have been interrupted by a little conversation, me and God. So wait a minute. 
Now, God, I know you're God, and I know you know some stuff, but this doesn't make sense. This one, this one, okay, yeah, that's, I understand all the other stuff, great. You led us out of, the, out of Egypt, you brought us to the Jordan, we crossed the Jordan, great. It's time to take the land, God, let's go. You've been promising this for hundreds of years, it's time to go, and yet God says, no, no, you're going to have to trust me. This theme of God being in charge and us, His people, needing to trust Him, we'll see throughout every single one of these stories. I don't know why God would stop other than to, to teach them to trust Him as they healed up. I don't know why He would stop them on their way. But we see in here just in a lesson that maybe we would overlook that they were going to have to trust Him. Verse 10. While the Israelites camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, they kept the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month. The day after Passover, they ate unleavened bread and roasted grain from the produce of the land. And the day after they ate from the produce of the land, the manna ceased. Since there was no more manna for the Israelites, they ate crops from the land of Canaan that year. Okay, big deal. They ate. They shared a meal together. (laughs) What's the point? You know, they had been provided manna for 40 years. Now, in and of itself, eating the same thing every meal for 40 years would, would, you know, would drive you nuts. But they were in the wilderness, had no way to provide for themselves. They had no home. One to two million people wandering around, how are we going to get food? We have no home, no job, no money. What are we going to do? God said, I'll take care of you. Every morning they got up, there's food on the ground. God took care of them every single day for 40 years. And then the manna stopped. Now, it may not be a shock to your system to think, well, okay, the manna stopped. But imagine something happening for 40 years. Think about it. Even, let's, say, let's take last Sunday morning, for example. As I mentioned earlier, many of you have had maybe your name etched on a particular pew for a long time. I really don't have a problem with that. It's fine. We're creatures of habit. No big deal. But last Sunday morning, we had a pretty packed house. I would imagine at least one or two of us walked in, and somebody was sitting in our seat. Well, hold on just a second. A little bit of a shock to our system. It hadn't happened before. What's going on? What am I supposed to do? You take that sort of mentality, and you think about after 40 years of you relying on something, it's going to be there every single day when you get up. Every Sunday when you walk in, that's your seat right there. And then somebody's in your seat. That manna's not there. Whoa. Hold on just a second. Now, that's a funny way of saying they were probably pretty shocked. What do they do? And yet it's obvious that when the manna ceased, since there was no more manna for the Israelites, they ate the crops of the land of Canaan that year. When God stopped providing in one way, He started providing in another way. He was in charge. He was in control. And I don't know what your life is all about. I don't know every single detail. I've I've had the privilege of learning some. But I don't know how God has continued to provide for you over and over and over again. All of a sudden, whoa, wait a minute, God, you've changed it up. But God always follows that provision with more provision. It may look different, may seem different. We may not like it at first, but God always follows it with another provision because He is in charge. Verse 13. <clears throat> when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Now, this, this is a real guy. This is not some, you know crazy you know, thing that happened and they just wrote about it because it sounded like a good story. Joshua approached him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Great question. 
this imposing figure standing there with a sword. I, you know, that would have been my first question. Whose side are you on? It'd be nice if you were on our side. If you're not, let me figure out how to make a truce with you somehow. Joshua says, are you for us or for our enemies? Just proves that Joshua's human. He thinks like we do. Neither. He replied, now I'm confused at this point. I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. Then Joshua bowed with his face to the ground in worship and asked him, What does my Lord want to say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Three different stories, three different things that don't really seem to fit together. One about circumcision, one about food, and one about some really imposing guy with a sword. How do these stories fit together? Joshua asks him, whose side are you on? He says, neither. What kind of response is that? And if I'm, if I'm, in the, if I'm Joshua, I'm thinking, okay, I gotta, you know, I gotta, I mean, what does that mean? Neither. But what he says next, he says, I have come as the commander of the Lord's army. You know, in life, we're always concerned with his is God on our side? I mean, if I got God on my side, and the truth of this scripture says, you know what? Far beyond having God on your side, I need to determine are you on his side or not? This guy came as the commander of the Lord's army. Who are you going to line up with? Joshua, are you going to lead this army? Are you going to let me lead this army? Joshua, who's going to be in charge? Is it going to be you, or are you going to bow down to the Lord and let him lead these people? From my perspective as a pastor of this particular church, as I have seen good and bad examples of pastors who would say verbally, you know, God's in charge and He's leading us, and yet I knew how they operated. And I knew that they really viewed themselves as the person in charge of that church. It's a challenge to me. And I think in our own lives, not just professionally, but personally, are we going to constantly just say, God, I need you on my side. I need you on my side. God, I need you, I need you, I need you. Are we going to say, you know what, God, I'm on your side. I don't care what that means. God, I'm not looking for credit. In, in, in the chapter just before this, it says that God exalted Joshua in the eyes of the Israelite people so that they revered him just as they had revered Moses. It, it's hard for us to put into terms because Moses is an old character in the Bible. Those people loved him. They, they worshipped Moses. Not in, a, not in the sense that he was a god, but you understand, and they just, man, they loved him. They were so devoted to him. And the Bible says that Joshua then gained their respect just like Moses had. And yet he still wasn't in charge. God showed up and he says, I'm in charge. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. It's been argued who this person was. Some people would say it was an angelic figure that, that appeared to to Joshua. Some people would say it because he says, I am the commander, the one in charge, that it was Jesus you know, in the Old Testament showing up before he actually came. And it's Jesus, what they call pre-incarnate, that he showed up. I don't really know. I haven't settled on that, done enough study. But all I do know is the point was made, Joshua, you've done a lot of good things. And you're a great guy. And you're going to be able to be the person, the human that leads these people. But understand this, you're not really in charge. God is in charge. He's the one who has protected you while your men healed. He's the one who, when he stopped providing manna, provided it in a different way. And he's the one that in chapter 6 is going to make those walls fall down. He's the one that's going to command the army. And 
you know, as I think about just my life and our lives, I, this particular chapter, I think, hits on that theme of God being in charge and us needing to depend on Him. I think God reiterates that over and over and over because if you think about Adam and Eve in the garden and the very first sin that was ever committed, and I believe the sin that we commit probably over and over and over again, though we don't necessarily label it because we've broken all of our sins down and we know this one and this one and this one, we've layered them and all that stuff. But ultimately, when Adam and Eve gave in to temptation, what was Satan's temptation? He said, has God really told you not to eat from that? I mean, did, you know, I mean, is that really the case? Because, you know, God, He just doesn't want you to be equal with Him. He just doesn't want you to know what He knows. He doesn't want you in His place. And so when Adam and Eve took a bite of that apple, they strove for equality with God for the opportunity to be in charge of their own lives, for the opportunity to make up their own rules. And you look at our society today, and you tell me if that's not our same problem today. That we don't want to serve God because we want to make up our own rules. Or we want to sort of do some of God's stuff, but you know, as long as that doesn't mess with my deal. I want to make up my own rules, and I want to be in charge of my life. How many people do you know? that will fight God for years and years because they simply won't recognize He's in charge. How many times in my life, how many times in your life, have we just butted heads with God because we just refuse to say, you know what, God? You're in charge. I don't know what that means. I don't know what's going to happen in chapter 6, God, but you are in charge. And in our church... I want it to be said of the leadership, both me and the other folks that serve, and of every single person that we recognize that those certain people may have certain positions, though I may get the opportunity to stand before you each week and appear to be the leader of this church in some way. That God is in charge. That He is the one who will provide protection for us when we're hurting. He will provide protection strength and healing when we need it most. And when God brings hurting and broken people into our body, He is the one, not us, that will get credit for what He does to heal them up when they are exposed to attack. And when God provides for us, and maybe sometimes it changes a little bit and we just don't see what God is doing, that we'll realize that when He stops providing in one way, He's going to provide in another and yeah, we've got to do our part, but we're going to trust Him to do His. And then, when we know that we're facing a battle, which we are every single day, when we look in our community and we see issues that we want to tackle and, and, and attack, and we see Him standing there with His sword, and instead of saying, God, come on and get on our side, we say, God, what do you have to say to your servants? Because we want to be on your side doing whatever you're doing. God is in charge. And when we trust Him for that protection, when we trust Him for His provision, we trust Him to fight our battles, and we just get on His side and get on board with whatever He's doing, then we get to experience, I believe, chapter 6 over and over and over again. We'll look at chapter 6 next Sunday morning. If you'd like to read ahead a little bit, it's a story that may be familiar to you. It's when they march around the city. 
they shout and the walls fall down. Now, hopefully, I'll make it a little bit more interesting than that next Sunday. But they run in, they take the city. But it wasn't before. We see three instances, different things that don't seem connected to help them understand God is in control. He is the one that will win these battles. He's the one who will protect. He's the one that will provide. Let's pray. Lord, it's a simple truth to know that you're in charge. And God, I, just in my own life, I know it's, it's more difficult to live out than it is to say. It's easy to stand up here and preach about it. God, it's easy to say that other people need to recognize that God's in charge, that our sinful world needs to recognize that we don't make up our own rules. But God, I'll be honest with you, it's, it's a whole lot harder than, than it seems to go out and live it. So God, I pray that you'd help us live it. Lord, for the times when we're broken and hurting, we thank you, Lord, for your protection. Thank you for healing us. And God, I pray you'd bring broken and hurting people to this body. I pray you bring them. And God, I pray that, that through this ministry here at Elm Grove, through the people who love you here, that they'd be healed. And God, I thank you for your provision for us, for always taking care of our needs. And Lord, help us to recognize that you'll always take care of us. And sometimes, God, you choose to do it in different ways. So help us to see it. And God, we... We want you on our side. We, we confess that to you. And yet at the same time, God, we know that we simply need to line up on your side. So, God, the battles that we'll face this week, help us to be on your side. Thank you for always being in charge and for taking care of us. God, thank you that we don't have to be in charge. Because, Lord, we're sinful people. We need a perfect God to lead us. And we thank you for that. God, I pray for the ministry here at Elm Grove. Lord, that we would recognize over and over and over again who's in charge. And each and every time something good happens, each and every time you lead us through a dark valley, that we would stand back and we'd say, Praise God, because you're the one from where all good things come. So God, we thank you for this night. Please protect us as we go out of here. In Jesus' name. Would you stand and join us in a closing song?